Jesus is king. But what does this really mean? Like Psalm 24 says, who is this king of glory? And how is he mysteriously concealed in the Old Testament, only to be revealed in the new? And how does Jesus ascend the throne to rule the universe as the only true perfect human king of the cosmos? How does he rule? If you understand these things and the answers to these questions, I promise you'll better understand how to live as loyal servants of King Jesus. Psalm 24, 7 through 10 says, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. So a few questions you can anticipate we're going to answer this morning. What does it mean that Jesus is king of the universe? How does the sovereign king rule? What should we expect from him, from his kingdom? And as citizens of his kingdom, how should we expect to function? What is our role, you know, as it relates to his rule and reign? And then we'll talk about how he ascended the throne and actually received this kingdom, which is really cool. The first thing we got to touch on is this. Um, God's king, King Jesus, is actually prophesied all throughout the Old Testament. So I want to give you a few types and shadows, a few prophecies, um, whether they're straightforward or, again, just types and shadows where you have an image of something or s- about Jesus or what he'll do. I want to take you to Genesis chapter 3. Because when we say that God has a kingdom, that we're a part of his kingdom, that Jesus is king, um, these are ideas that are not new to the New Testament. They're not introduced with Jesus. He's building on the foundation laid in the Old Testament. And if you don't understand the prophecies that came before him and how he actually acts as a bridge between the Old and the New and, and brings us into the New Covenant, there's a, there's a lot about what he does that won't make sense. So let me take you all the way back to Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sin in the garden and humanity falls from the garden presence of God. The Lord says to the serpent, he says, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now watch what he says. I will put enmity, hostility between you and the woman. So there will be hostility between the serpent and humankind between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head, singular, and you shall bruise his heel, which refers to um, Jesus, mainly. This is the very first, uh, at least prophetic image of what it is that Jesus will specifically do when he does come, is he intends to crush the head of the serpent. And though he will experience death, and his heel will be bruised by the serpent and his offspring, those who align themselves with the devil and his kingdom, Jesus will reign supreme and crush every, every enemy under his feet, mainly involving Satan and his kingdom. Genesis chapter 17. Now you go, that's not a direct prophecy about Jesus being king. Yes, it is. That's a victorious prophecy of his triumph as the king of the universe. The king of the universe who already reigns in heaven, he didn't have to come down into our world and become a man, and take on our nature, and suffer in our place. He does that to win back what you and I have lost, what you and I, humanity, has forfeited, and what we never could gain on our own. Genesis 17, this is what God says to Abraham. We're just going to look at a few key stories in the Old Testament. He says, No longer shall your name be called Abram, okay, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father 
of a multitude of nations. And the Lord says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. So what I want to highlight, what God says to Abraham, Abraham has always had a general idea of what the Lord wants to do through his offspring. God said, I will give you a son. Now God says, I'll, I'll actually make you a blessing to the nations. You'll be the father of many nations. I will make you fruitful. We see that in the, in the original mandate to humanity in Genesis, be fruitful and multiply. I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you which is going to culminate in Jesus being the ultimate king. And verse 7 says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring. So there's a covenant God intends to make. One party is him. The other party is Abraham and his offspring, which I'll highlight in blue. After you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. Notice the language used of the everlasting, never endingness of this covenant, this possession, this land, this promise that God makes to Abraham about there will be nations that you will rule over, that you will bless. You'll be a blessing to the nations. Abraham himself on his own is not a blessing to the nations. It is the one who comes through him and through his line being Jesus that brings ultimate heavenly blessing to the nations. That's what God is referring to. That Jesus being the ultimate king who establishes the eternal covenant between him and the father and those who are grafted into him and gives an everlasting possession, a kingdom to his people. That's what God has in mind here. Of course, down the line, there will be partial fulfillments of this in the people of Israel and with the nation and the kings that are set up. But it's mainly going to be fulfilled and culminate in Christ, who is the ultimate king that comes from the line of Abraham. Numbers 24, this is Balaam. Balaam is a seer. You got to understand, Balaam's not necessarily a good fella. Um, He's not your standard prophet, but he, he is someone who, through oracles and through somewhat pagan means, he does get to interact with God and have a communication line with God, like the true and living God. This is not a, a false God. This is not an idol. This is, this is the true and living God interacting with Balaam, who is a seer and has sort of pagan means by which he interacts with God. That A discussion for another day, but this is the last um, speech Balaam's going to give, prophecy and word from God that he's going to give to the king of Moab. You don't need to know much beyond that. Just this is what Balaam or God through Balaam is saying about the nation of Israel. The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down with his eyes uncovered. And Balaam says, I see him now, but not, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. This is all the way back in Numbers. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Then he'll go on to talk about what nations will be dispossessed, Israel being the one who is conquering these nations. But mainly, what Balaam has in mind is something way down the line. 
the true star that will ascend out of Jacob, the true scepter that will rise out of Israel to reign over the nations of the world eternally. That's why Balaam says, I see him, but not now. He has a glimpse of the Almighty, mainly the one who comes to rule the nations on behalf of the Ancient of Days, that being Jesus. Balaam is getting an image of the, prophet, of, of the future rule and reign of Jesus, the Messiah, who comes out of Israel, who, who ascends out of Jacob, really the ashes of, of Israel in the state that they're in. And notice the language. It's the idea of crushing the head of the enemies. And those who oppose God and his kingdom are trampled down by this king that comes out of Israel. Now, you can make this about Israel and what Israel will do throughout their history, but I would not say that the, the way Balaam is framing this up, that it was fulfilled in Israel and their kings alone, this has to be about something that has yet to take place or is fulfilled in Christ. It's the already and the not yet. Either way, I am so convinced it's about Jesus when you read that in context. Second Samuel chapter 7, we have a prophecy given to David. David's super pumped. He has an idea. You know, when you get ideas, you share them with everyone. David has an idea. I want to build a house for God. I feel bad for him. I'm in this beautiful, beautiful house. And where's God? In a teeny tiny little place. And then God answers David's desire through the prophet Nathan. God sends Nathan to give David a message. And part of Nathan's message to David is about David's future house and the heritage and his descendants, and his name. And this is what the Lord says through Nathan to King David. He says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will actually make you a house. Now, David was interested in a physical house for God. God is interested in a name, in, a, in, a, in an actual, the, the family name of David continuing eternally so that through David's line, this king will come, who will not just be the king of Israel, but the king of the nations. And beyond that, the king of the cosmos, the king of all. It says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I'll raise up, for your, I'll raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The problem is this can't be true of Solomon, because his kingdom was actually divided, and his kingdom actually fell to pieces. And his throne is not forever. What God has in mind here through when he prophesies through Nathan to David and reveals the future is that there will be someone that comes from David, will have an eternal kingdom, an eternal throne that God will establish forever. And it's about the house and the name of David continuing through this king. Now we'll go on to talk about if this guy sins, this is where we see the prophecy applying to Solomon in that temporary sense, but the fullness of that prophecy being more true of Jesus. This is the dual dimension of prophecy at times, is there are immediate fulfillments and then there are fulfillments that don't come later till later down the line. And often some prophecies are more true of what comes down the line through Christ than they are of what happens immediately. So there's a promise given to David. 
So this sounds like what Balaam prophesies. This sounds like what God says to Abraham. This sounds like what God says to the serpent in Genesis 3. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, it says, Of the increase of his government, this one who, well, to us a child is born. Let's start there. To us a son is given your favorite Christmas prophecy. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government. And we've talked about how kingdoms have government. Kingdoms have structure. Kingdoms have hierarchy and a system in place. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So I want you to note, in every prophecy I've shown you about this future coming king, what he establishes is eternal, everlasting, never-ending, permanent, can never be taken down. It's unshakable. Isaiah continues that. Of the increase of his government, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. There is one who is coming, who has come from our vantage point through the line of David, has been given a kingdom. It's established eternally. There's no end to it. And the king who establishes this government and the peace that flows from his rule is never ending. And it is God who does this. Daniel chapter 7 shows us something about Jesus. It's really cool. Daniel says this in chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. This son of man is presented as if being able to stand before God himself. As we'll see in the future New Testament, it's because he is God in the flesh. And he can stand before his father because he's had fellowship with his father for all eternity. And to him is given a glory, or to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So whatever this king is going to do, there's an eternal nature to it. Nations come, kingdoms come. The glory, dominion, and kingdom of this one who approaches the ancient of days, but he's like a son of man and he comes on the clouds. There is something divine about him. There's something unspeakable about his glory. And the kind of kingdom that he actually um, establishes. This is the last Old Testament prophecy we'll look at. Zechariah 9, 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Zion. Now think about how Jesus rides into Jerusalem for what a lot of people are hoping to be a coronation and him ruling and destroying Rome, but it ends up being a crucifixion days later. Think about how Jesus rides into Jerusalem. Zechariah, prophesying of that, says, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous And having salvation is he. He's humble and he's mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. And you can go on to read about all that comes attached to that and what God intends to do in Zechariah's day. But the point is there is a coming king who is righteous 
And salvation is what he has because salvation is what he is. But he comes humbly. He comes humbly. And he comes riding in on an unimpressive animal to not make a spectacle of himself. We see statements like this in John chapter 1. We're going to jump New Testament. So those are, you could probably scour the Old Testament and find way more prophecies than that. But that's at least going to give us the foundation to see what we're about to. John 1, 49, Nathaniel sees Jesus and he goes, You are the Son of God and you are the King of Israel. Notice, at least in Nathaniel's theology, that is pulled from the Torah, right? He's, he's, he's gathering this theology from the prophets, from the Psalms, from the writings, from the Torah. And what he has concluded is that whoever is going to be the Son of God is the King of Israel and vice versa. Whoever is the true king of Israel prophesied all throughout the story of the Old Testament, he has to also be the son of God. There has to be. So you have to read the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus and understand that what the Old Testament gives us as a category for Jesus is not just someone who is born into our world, one of us created. He's not created. But the Old Testament gives us a category of whoever is savior, whoever is king, whoever is conquering, triumphing in the name of God and bringing the nations under his reign. Whoever this anointed one is and this Messiah savior figure is, he also is going to be divine. He's going to be divinity in the flesh. Revelation chapter 1 verse 4 and 5, John to the seven churches in Asia. He says, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth notice how the throne or the rule of God in in heaven is connected to Jesus being the ruler of the kings on earth you cannot disconnect the reign of God in the heavens from the reign of Jesus, both on the earth and in the heavens as well. Revelation, they play off each other. Revelation 17, 14 talks about how they will make war on the lamb. You can read the context later. And the lamb will conquer them. This is the point. He is Lord of lords and king of kings. Revelation 1 said he was the ruler of the kings on the earth. And he is. He's over every human ruler that ever has been, ever will be, and currently is. All kings will bow the knee and and are yielded to um, and at the mercy of King Jesus and with and those with him who are called and chosen and faithful. In other words, those who will be on the side of this King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Those who are on his side and a part of his kingdom are called. They're characterized by faithfulness and they're chosen of God. Revelation 19.16 On his robe, being the one who descends from the Almighty to dispense the wrath of God on the ungodly, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. When we say Jesus is king, we mean so much more than just Jesus rules, Jesus reigns, Jesus is sovereign. It's all those ideas but you really have to dig to understand what those things even mean. So connected to God's kingdom is his son. There is no 
kingdom without Jesus being king. There is no preaching of the kingdom without proclaiming Jesus as king. So I want to show you a few New Testament passages. Just for those of you that are, you know, you're very evangelic, evangelistic in your, in your ministry methods. And a lot of what you do is geared toward preaching the gospel and delivering the gospel. This will be helpful to you. When you preach the gospel, there is no true gospel of the kingdom without proclaiming Jesus as king. That's what was so, um, I guess, scary about the message of Jesus in the New Testament was that you were saying, Jesus is king. These other human rulers are phonies. They're fakes. They're living on borrowed time, borrowed energy, borrowed life, and borrowed authority. It was a very, very scary message to preach in those days. Acts 28, 23 says this. I just want you to meditate on these things. More than this being like a life application in three steps, I'm going to show you. I want you to see him for who he is and understand what it is to be a part of this kingdom who a part of, you know, and over this kingdom is one who is not only prophesied and proclaimed, but he rules so, it's so different than what we see in our world and what we've seen historically in, in governors and kings and rulers and it, it, he's different. Acts 28, 23, when they had appointed a day for him, that being Paul, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. Notice the connection, what I'm about to show you, between the proclaiming of God's kingdom and Jesus as king. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Watch. And trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Paul's strategy as he's um, on house arrest is I'm going to explain from the Torah, from the prophets and the writings, who Jesus is and why he is who we say he is and how that relates to God's kingdom. There is no kingdom of God without the one who was prophesied in the Old Testament to be the king of all. And Jesus is that. He is king. Acts 8.12 says, When they believed Philip, Philip goes and preaches in Samaria. As he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So you have people who believe. What do they believe? They believe the good news about this kingdom. One dimension of this good news is that the name of this Jesus brings salvation and brings you into his kingdom. His reputation, his rule, his kingship, his atonement. Again, you don't have the kingdom of God or good news about that kingdom without the sacrificial life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And who he is can't be disconnected from that either. Mark 11.10, it says, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And they're saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're shouting about Jesus coming. They're celebrating, proclaiming Hosanna, preparing the way for who in their minds is the king of Israel. He's going to crush Rome. Yeah. Blessed is he who comes. Let's do this thing. This is the kingdom of our father, David. They're seeing Jesus as the one who sets up or finalizes the kingdom of David permanently. The problem with that is Jesus intends to set up a spiritual kingdom and bring us into that before it actually 
manifests on the earth in new creation. Colossians 1.13 talks about how God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and he's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. So when you're proclaiming the kingdom of God and Jesus is king, you must. It's, it's not like this is an, a negotiable. This is a non-negotiable. You must proclaim the redemption and forgiveness of sins that are in his name. Otherwise, there is no entrance into the kingdom. There is no real kingdom for us to inhabit. And there is no possible way for us to enjoy God in his presence eternally in the kingdom of God without Jesus accomplishing our redemption, laying down his life, resurrecting from the dead, dying our death, paying for our sin. So proclaiming the kingdom is not just saying, hey, I'm a part of a new kingdom now because some guy named Jesus, you proclaim what he did. You have to. Otherwise, it makes no sense to people. And then for the rest of their lives, they're on their own trying to bridge the gap between what you told them and what they don't yet know. Revelation 12.10. Back to Revelation. I believe this is John recounting what he hears. He says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Notice the salvation and power and kingdom of God cannot be disconnected from the authority of Jesus. It's as if Jesus is the vessel through which these things come into our world and our reality. You don't have the salvation of God. You don't have the power of God in your life to live transformed or be a new creation. You don't have the kingdom of God without the authority of Jesus first being established. And that's what we're going to make sense of in a minute. I want to take you to John 18. Show you what Jesus himself says to Pilate. This is crazy. This just shows you the boldness and the absolute confidence of Jesus. It is unbelievable. Unbelievable. Pilate enters his headquarters and calls Jesus and goes, Hey, buddy, listen. <laughs> you keep telling me you're king of the Jews. Are, are you the king of the Jews or what? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or did others say this about me to you? Pilate answered, Look, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, and this is, this is the answer, his answer to Pilate's question, what have you done? Are you the king of the Jews? He's answering both. My kingdom, answer number one, yes, is not of this world. So how does he answer, are you the king of the Jews? It's a yes and no answer. He's the rightful ruler of all things. But not everyone claims Jesus and has loyalty to him as their king. So am I the rightful ruler of all people? Sure. But are all among the Jews my own citizens and my people, those who are loyal to me? That's why he says my kingdom is not of this world. So there's no confusion. And yet there's incredible confusion for Pilate still. My, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, physical and temporal in nature right? 
just material, just about temporary human rule here on planet Earth, and about the now and about taking over, my servants would have been fighting. But they're not. Otherwise, I wouldn't be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said, so, so you're a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. It must have been very hard for Pilate to have a conversation with Jesus. Just, oh man. Jesus answered, you say I'm a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I've come into the world. To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. This is a huge, huge repeating theme. Huge. Sorry, I just had to go. The huge repeating theme in John. John's gospel over and over. Those who are of the truth, those who are not. So if you want to be of his kingdom, you have to be of the truth and listen to his voice as your king. That means he's your king. You listen to his voice. You're loyal to him. You're in his kingdom. You're of the truth. But if you're not, then you're of the world. And the kingdom of God is not of the world or from the world. It's not even about the temporary world as it is currently. It transcends that. But notice, Jesus does admit he has a kingdom. But it is not about this temporary life. The way Pilate has, well, borrowed rule and authority, Jesus does not. I want to show you a couple other things. When we talk about Jesus being king, prophesied in the Old Testament, clear statements in the New and why you can't have God's kingdom without the authority and rulership of his son, okay? One of the questions that comes up is, well, how did Jesus receive the kingdom? How did he come into his kingdom? What does it even mean that Jesus, because you and I, working from our vantage point, we're going, hold on, Jesus is eternally existent. He is, in and of himself, the very concept of eternity. There is no None of that without him. So he and the scriptures say God inhabits eternity, right? He's the self-existent, eternally existent one. With that in mind, doesn't Je- hasn't Jesus always had a kingdom? It seems to minimize his authority, his power, his divinity, his character, his name. It seems to minimize Jesus when we say that well, at one point, point he didn't have this kingdom. And now he does. So how do we make sense of that? If, if, if Jesus is God in the flesh, he rightfully rules and reigns over all, whether or not he comes into our world and lays down his life. So what's going on here? How is it that he receives the kingdom? The kingdom that he's ushering in, more than receiving, you might say, there is a, there is a way in which the kingdom is being received by Jesus, and he's doing what he needs to do to attain what we have forfeited and lost access to through our sin and rebellion. That's why he's one of us to represent humanity before the Father. But beyond that, it's not just he's receiving something, he's ushering in something that we were completely cut off from and we were helpless to ever get back to. There's no chance. There's no chance any of us could have ever found our way back into the kingdom of God unless someone, God himself, comes down into our world to usher in the kingdom. But there's almost a legal way, according to the law, the Torah, the prophets, there's there's a way that has to happen that God has prescribed for his son to do. So the way that Jesus receives the kingdom to usher that in through him to us 
is by self-sacrifice and obedience. But it starts with Jesus ministering. Let me show you what I mean. The way Matthew presents Jesus as king is... There we go. Matthew 9.35 is the way Jesus brings his kingdom into our world, assuming that it's actually foreign to it, is that he, Jesus went throughout all the cities, the villages, and he teaches in their synagogues. He proclaims the gospel of the kingdom. Part of that proclamation is power. And he heals every disease, and every affliction. The kingdom of God is not just talk. It's not just chit-chat. It's not just intellectual stimulation. It's not just cognitive. It's not just informational. The kingdom of God is power. And we'll see that. The kingdom of God is righteousness. The kingdom of God is the fruits of the Spirit and the presence of God. And Jesus advances and ushers in his spiritual kingdom, not just by proclaiming that it's at hand, but by demonstrating its power and actually bringing people in to that kingdom through the miraculous power he demonstrates so that it validates what he's saying. So they're not wondering, are you really who you say you are? We just saw the dead raised. We just saw Lazarus, three days dead. Smelt like putrid porta potty and he just came right out because Jesus told him to so part of the the kingdom of God coming through the ministry of Christ is in power proclamation and truth but also healing signs wonders supernatural occurrences where the message is validated and it's clear that this this Jesus truly is the one whom the whom God has promised I want to take you to John 14 because we're going to continue to answer that question. What is the way that Jesus ascends the throne or receives the kingdom on our behalf? Again, he's not attaining something that he himself lacks. He's attaining what you and I lack, the legal route that has to take place. The way he has to do it is by paying our legal fees, paying for our sin, dying our death, taking our punishment upon himself, handling our crime and our separation from God, and then resurrecting. Romans uh, 6 and 7 have a lot to say about that. Just the whole prescribed process that has to take place. John 14, look at the way that Jesus, I guess, goes to the cross. This is incredible. Imagine your last few hours with your best friends. Your, your family. These guys are more than family, if there's even a category for that. And Jesus is spending his last few hours eating with them, knowing he's about to be mutilated, torn apart, and tortured, and scorned and mocked and rejected by his own people, and nailed to a cross, willingly late. He's going to wash the feet of his disciples and even the one who he knows already is going to betray him. This just speaks volumes to the way the kingdom of God operates that is completely foreign to our world. The king of the cosmos 
that makes sure the sun and the moon and the and the stars and the that to make he's the one who sustains the universe is what I'm saying. That king comes down and lays down his life, but hours before, he's washing the dirtiest part of his people who don't even understand what he's doing yet. He says, "Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me." Look, in my father's house, there's many rooms. In other words, there's just a lot of room in my fa- in my father's family and in our household. If it weren't so, would I have told you I go to prepare a place for you? And look, if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and take you to myself. So that where I am, you may be also. And, and you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. What the heck? You're leaving? Since when? How can we know the way? We don't even know where you're going. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's one way in. One. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you've seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. and It's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. I just realized I'm reading the wrong chapter, but I want to keep reading anyway, and then I'll bring you. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me? The words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. This right here, believe in me that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. So I mixed up John 13 and 14. John 13 is the washing of the feet. But this actually continues the point about the kingdom of God, the authority of Christ, and the works the Father does through the Son. Someone left a comment on one of my videos the other day. And I thought, that's actually exactly right. Someone said, what it means to rest in God is not that there are no more works being done by your, by your life. It's that you're relying on His work that he's done for you, right? And then through that faith, the way that faith is expressed is that the Father will complete his works through you. In other words, the work doesn't the work of atonement and salvation and redemption was Jesus' job and making you a born again. But now that you're a child of God, the works the Father wants to do through you, which Jesus will say he's essentially passing on to his people, those works come with the proclamation of the kingdom. They have to. And it's not just supernatural. It's not just signs and wonders. It's not just healings. It's this. It's Jesus during supper when the devil devil had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. Jesus knowing the Father had given all things into his hands. And that he had come from God and was going back to God. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, which I've done a video on this, but this little, this little, story right here is such a picture of the gospel the idea of jesus taking on humanity laying aside not his divinity but laying aside his glory his worship his exclusive rights and entitlements as god he lays that aside to become dependent on the father as the living word made flesh to humanity and he puts on um you know lays aside the glory and worship to put on flesh and then in that flesh in that body on the cross sin itself human evil is punished and condemned in the flesh of Jesus so that his death becomes 
our own through faith. We're spiritually baptized and he's taken our death and we have his life. There's such a picture of that right here. He lays aside his outer garments and, and takes a towel, ties it around his waist. The outer garments, I, I'm so convinced, is a picture of John's intentionally painting a picture of Jesus coming down from glory into our broken, despairing, hopeless, sin-pervaded world. And he takes a towel, ties it around his waist, which I believe is a representation of Jesus taking on humanity and taking on the human nature. And he poured water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet, and he wipes them with the towel that was wrapped around him. In other words, Jesus cleans his people here with the water, right? But the wiping and the cleaning takes place with the towel wrapped around his waist. As if, he's, as if his towel is absorbing the filth from their feet. In the same way, Jesus' flesh in his body, he absorbs the filth of human sin and evil on the cross. I'm telling you, there's such a picture here. And he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus said, what I'm doing, you don't understand now. But afterward, you will understand. Peter said, you'll never wash my feet. Jesus answered, look, buddy, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. Peter probably just, Lord, not my feet only, also my, wash my hands. And my head, give me a bath in front of everyone. I don't care. Jesus said, look, the one who has bathed doesn't need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean. Not every one of you. Right, Judas? For he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said not all of you were clean. When he washed their feet, accomplished their cleansing, and taken on their filth and towel, he put on his outer garments and resumed his place. And he said, do you understand what I've done? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, I am. He says, I've given you an example that a servant is not greater than his master to love, to serve, to lay down your life. This, you, you have to understand, yes, the kingdom of God is power and righteousness and, and supernatural wonders and heavenly you know, encounters with God in the world, but it's the substance of God's kingdom is walking and living like Jesus. That, that is the gracious, beautiful gift God has bestowed upon us. The greatest gift is a relationship with himself, a connection to himself, friendship with God. There's nothing that comes close to that. But part of that involves now you have the God-given gift to actually image Jesus and represent him well and steward faithfully what he's given you and serve his people. So Jesus putting on his outer garments is like him assuming his place. He literally says he resumed his place, which has to be a reference to the ascension and Jesus being stationed where he was and being right back in the glory and worship he's had for all eternity. This is the substance of God's kingdom. Human nature, it, it, the human tendency is to take something good and over time slowly corrupt and pervade that with our own preferences and intentions and self-interest and it doesn't look like anymore what it was supposed to be. And unfortunately, this is just what the, the church at large, if we can call it that, like 
because there's a lot of people who are actually in that church who actually are not of the church, and there are lots of church communities. The conversation could go on and on, but the point is the church at large has slowly, over time, and the enemy has subtly crept, crept in and crapped on everything God wants to do, but he's crept in so that the church has slowly corrupted the beauty of what God's kingdom was always supposed to be. Just always supposed to be love and service and standing on the truth boldly and accurately, faithfully being true to the scriptures and discipling and laying down your life and being generous with your time and your resources and even at times seeing yourself, you know, laid aside so someone else can benefit. Self-sacrifice, not self-interest, self-sacrifice. So this is the way Jesus receives the kingdom is through self-sacrifice and obedience. Mark chapter 15 is a thick passage, so hang tight. The soldiers led him away inside the palace. Remember, I really want you to imagine what is about to take place is a, it's a mockery of Jesus. It, from, the, from the perspective of the soldiers and the governor, they're making a, this is a mockery coronation. It's not a legitimate coronation. He's not really the king. This is just one of among many of the Jewish criminals that we're about to nail to a cross, and we're going to make a spectacle of him. The irony is, as they make a spectacle of him, and as he's hanging there, the man on the cross, who we thought, if you could heal everyone, can't you bring yourself down? If God loves you, wouldn't he spare you from this? That, that man hanging on the cross, King Jesus, taking on the sins of the world and all the mockery and the scorning of people, the irony about that is he's actually making a spectacle of the enemy through his death and resurrection. So what you're about to see from the perspective of God, and if you read this through a spiritual lens, it is indeed a legitimate coronation. It is indeed Jesus ascending the throne on our behalf to be our human representative and king of the nations who rules and actually stewards faithfully what God has entrusted to him. And Adam and Eve couldn't do what he's about to do. And now he is the true king of the cosmos so that we can walk into this beautiful kingdom and be under his lordship. He's making way for that. This is a legitimate coronation what you're about to see. But again, from the perspective of the soldiers and those who are not for Jesus, this is a big old mockery. The soldiers led him away and they called together the whole battalion. They clothed him in a purple cloak. Twisting together, I think it's Luke that tells us it's crimson. Whatever the color is, it's supposed to uh, note royalty. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. So you have the crown of a king. You have the majestic cloak of a king and the robe, they put it on him, and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head. I want you to note that. Jesus, through this self-sacrifice, is crushing the head of the enemy. But it looks like he's the one whose head is getting beaten in. The striking of his head is only temporarily. Temporary. But the way Jesus is going to strike the head of the enemy is permanent and eternal. Can't reverse it. They're taking the reed 
right? That a king would typically have spit on him, kneeling down and in homage to him. They're kneeling, they're spitting. When they mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, put his own clothes on and let him out to crucify him. They compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. Isn't that interesting? That the place Jesus is being crucified has to do with the head. Hmm. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, the whole crucifixion process. If detailed here and outlined in stark detail would have you guys cringing. John is, or Mark is sparing you. They crucified him, dividing his garments, casting lots for them to decide which each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him and the inscription of the charge against him. In other words, here's his crime. The king of the Jews. What's his crime? According to what Pilate put on the sign. His crime is not that he claimed to be. The, this is the whole, the, the Pharisees had a really big issue with what Pilate wrote. Very big issue. They go, he, not the king of the Jews. He said he was the king. He goes, what I've written, I've written. So the, the crime is that he is the king of the Jews. Not that he claimed to be. And, they, and with, them, with him, they crucified two robbers. One on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. Is that not always the temptation of humanity that we face? Self-interest, self-preservation, sustaining our own security at the cost and expense of others? They're making fun of him. Come down from the cross. So the chief priest with the scribes mocked him. Can you imagine seeing your local synagogue leaders and, and chief priests and scribes who you revere and respect mocking and showing their true colors? <sighs> he saved others. He can't save himself. Am I right, boys? Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. But we'll see later, one of the criminals on Jesus's, we don't know what side he was on, but he ends up believing. And he says, when you come in your kingdom, remember me. It goes on and on to note what happens as he dies and yields up his spirit and breathes his last, accomplishing our salvation, going into the grave, only to break out three days later because death can't hold him. Can't. This King Jesus receives the kingdom that we have lost access to and ushers that spiritual kingdom back into our reality through self-sacrifice and obedience to the Father. That is how it comes. So it does come in power. It does come in glory. But it's packaged in mockery and shame and what looks like a mock crucifixion and a big old joke. It's legitimately Jesus being coronated the king of all kings. Not for his gain necessarily, as if he lacked anything, but to gain what we have lost. 
because of sin and rebellion. So this is not to minimize Jesus, his authority. This is not to minimize his rule and reign over the cosmos as God. This is to say God came down to become what we could never be, to do what we could never do, and to give us what we could never attain on our own. And the way that Jesus ascends the throne and receives the kingdom through self-sacrifice and obedience becomes the framework for how Jesus rules in his kingdom. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 8 tells us how the king rules. It says, of the son, this is God speaking. He's talking to the son. So God says to the son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Jesus' kingdom is not built on the death of those who were in the way. Jesus' kingdom is not built on oppression and slavery. Jesus' kingdom is not built on warfare and, you know, taxing the crap out of his citizens and manipulating and scheming and deceiving. Jesus' kingdom is built on absolute perfect uprightness. He says, you've loved righteousness, you've hated wickedness. This is the ministry and the character and the whole life of Jesus on the earth. Every waking moment, he chose to hate wickedness and embody, being the word of God helps, but loving righteousness and embodying the ways of the Father. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. The anointing here goes well beyond just making Jesus our representative. It's high priesthood, it's mediator, it's king, it's the rightful heir of the cosmos. It's the one who makes way for other children of God to come and be a part of this kingdom. God anointing the son here is the result of Jesus hating wickedness and loving righteousness. And now his kingdom that is established spiritually through his people and through his spirit, it's built on righteousness. It's built on integrity and humility and love and uprightness and justice. That you and I cannot think of any human kingdom in all of human history or in all of the human future. We, there's no kingdom that exists besides Jesus' kingdom, besides the kingdom of God, that is perfect justice and righteousness. This concept of a king who rules perfectly over his people and has his citizens good in mind and doesn't oppress and enslave them like every other ruler, it's a foreign concept to us. This is why we cannot settle into any temporary human government and system that's established and go, I'm just hoping the president will be and see. I'm just hoping my governor will. They can do what they want. And God has given them a degree of authority. But what I'm looking forward to is what no human scheming and innovation can accomplish it's the kingdom of god and it's coming in fullness matthew 18 23 the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wishes to settle accounts with his servants in other words this is what it looks like for jesus to come back and hold his citizens accountable When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. 
since he couldn't pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me. I'll pay you everything. This is not the parable that I was thinking of. That's Matthew 25. But this is still the accountability and forgiveness that we see the king has. The servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me. I'll pay you everything. Out of pity, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. So we see the mercy of the king displayed in this parable. But also the harsh reality of the king having incredible, just, righteous wrath against those who proved to be his enemies. But you can go on and read this, but I meant to bring you to this passage, sorry. That's about the king and his kingdom too, what do you know? Luke 19, 12 through 15. He's talking about the kingdom of God because they're going, you know, the Jews are going, it's going to happen immediately and Jesus is going. Let me tell you a story, fellas. Uh, A nobleman, he went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minus minus some kind of currency, and he said, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to reign over us. Is that not the crucifixion and the people of Israel yelling, crucify him, crucify him. He's not our king. Caesar's our king. This parable is pretty telling. When he returned, having received the kingdom. Now, parables are not always a perfect parallel to reality in every detail. But the main point is that there is a king who receives a kingdom who wasn't wanted by his people and he holds people accountable who are his citizens. He ordered those servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mena has made 10 minus more. And he said, well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And he went, what? The second came, Lord, your men has made five minutes. He said, you're going to be over five cities. Then another came, Lord, here's your mena. Mina, I kept it in a handkerchief. I was afraid. I was afraid of you. Which already shows an incorrect view of the king. Because you're a severe man did not know his master. You take what you didn't deposit and reap what you didn't sow. In other words, you're unfair. Take advantage. Your gain comes through other people's hard work. He said, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew I was a severe man, taking what I didn't deposit and reaping what I didn't sow. If that were true, I'm going to work with your own words here. Then why didn't you put my money into the bank? At my coming, I could have collected it with interest. You would have been fine. Right? That's the idea here. And he said to those who stood by, take the minute from him and give it to those who have the, give it to the guy who has 10. And he said, Lord, he already has 10. Sounds like my son. (laughs) I tell you, to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. As for these enemies of mine who didn't want to reign, me to reign over them, bring them here. Slaughter them before me. The enemies of the king will be destroyed, period. But genuine mercy and compassion and grace is available through that same king to any who wants it. And the good news is that all this king does is pure justice. 
the way he holds you accountable, what he gives you and entrusts to you, what he expects of you, what he rewards you with, he rules with perfect justice. In fact, more about this rule and authority and power and dominion and judgment and justice. Philippians 2, 9 through 11, it says, as a result of Jesus being obedient to the point of death and laying his life down to the point of crucifixion, well, in response to that, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, which is the name that grants forgiveness of sins. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. This is the king we belong to. I want you to think about this for a minute. Paint this picture. This is your king. This is my king. He's the one who rules over us and protects us and cares for us and gives us what we need each and every day and faithfully deals with us and meets with us and chooses to let us in his presence and chooses to have one-on-one interactions with each and every one of his children. This king who is unstoppable and rules the cosmos sovereignly and no one can stay his hand, everyone is going to bow before him in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. You ever been next to someone who was really powerful and there was a threat to you and you felt safe and secure because your big strong friend who had a degree of authority and power was next to you. That's the idea of judgment day. We're not cowering in fear. We're out of our mind cheering for the king as all of his enemies are standing before him in terror and cowering in fear, knowing what their demise is going to end up being and how they're going to die. We're going, this is it. Every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth, every tongue will confess he is Lord. And it is to the glory of the Father. Remember how I said you can't disconnect the throne of God from the throne and rule of His Son. It's not possible. So guess what? This King of Kings, who is unstoppable, who is sovereign over every single decision being made currently on the earth, always has been, always will be. He's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He relies on nothing outside of himself. He rules and reigns supremely above all things, not just on the earth, not just under the earth, those referring to those who are uh, in the realm of the dead and even those who are locked up in chains as spiritual beings, but every spiritual being in the heavenly places are going to bow their knee to him. That's a powerful king. That's a powerful king. Psalm chapter 2, it says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? You know, the kings of the earth, they set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. You'll see a lot of times Jesus being anointed or being referred to as the anointed one refers to his rulership and reign as king. Let us burst apart their bonds and cast away their cords from us. These are the kings of the earth saying, essentially, we don't want God and his king. We don't want his kingdom. We want autonomy. We want rebellion. He who sits in the heavens laughs. (laughs) The Lord holds them in derision. Then he'll speak to them in his wrath. 
and terrify them in his fury, saying, this is supposed to be terrifying to these rulers. As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, and today I've begotten you. It's the concept of Jesus being anointed. Ask of me, the father says to this beloved son. I'll make the nations your heritage. I'll make the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Therefore, kings, be wise and be warned, rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord. In other words, here's your chance. Here's your chance to not be decimated. Serve the Lord with fear. What does that look like? Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. That's what it looks like to serve the Lord and fear the Lord appropriately is you reverence his son and you align yourself with him and his kingdom and you're loyal to him as your king. Lest he be angry, the son, and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled against his enemies. It's referring to but blessed are all who take refuge in him. There is no stopping what God has set in motion through his son. There's no stopping it. There's no slowing it. There's no avoiding it. Every knee will, will bow, either in reverence and love and excitement or in terror and humiliation and even a hatred for the king. You're either a child of God or you're an enemy. And what we'll see in the scriptures is that God's kingdom is coming in glory. It's the whole already but not yet. And when you see God's kingdom come, it relates to the glory of God coming and the presence of God coming. I'll take you to a few scriptures to show you what I mean. Psalm 145 verse 11 says, They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and they'll tell of your power. To make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And your dominion endures through all generations. You know, when Jesus is on the cross and one of the criminals goes, you know what? I don't believe it. (laughs) I missed it, man. You really are the king. And when you come in your kingdom, remember me. If one of the criminals look at Jesus, go, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus goes, truly I say to you, you'll be with me in paradise. Notice how the kingdom of God coming is related to just pure paradise. But the idea of Jesus and his kingdom coming, not only does it have to do with the future, you know, with the future, but this is Jesus coming in his kingdom. So when he comes, His kingdom comes with him. His kingdom comes with him. Luke 22, Jesus talks about how I won't drink from the fruit of this vine until the kingdom of God comes. 1 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12. says, You know how like a father with his children we exhorted you, each one of you, and encouraged you and charged you, walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom in glory. In other words, the kingdom and the glory of God here are synonymous. You go, no, the glory is an aspect of the kingdom, or the kingdom is an aspect of his glory. 
What I want you to notice is that in Scripture, a lot of the times when God refers to His own glory, He's actually referring to the inheritance of His own people. So in Scripture, it's as if the kingdom of God is indeed synonymous with His glory at times, and the glory of God is His inheritance in His people. In other words, His kingdom, His citizens, His people are His glory. I think Romans 8 would also speak to this. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, the end of 2 Corinthians or Romans 16. I think it's Romans 16 speaks to this. Uh, I didn't prepare those passages. I just want you to think about this. The kingdom of God, it's not like the fullness of God's glory in its entirety is just packed into this one thing called his people. But because God is glorious without his people, but his people and his kingdom and his, his citizens are such a profound expression of his character and glory and, and name that it's as if his people are his glory in the earth. His kingdom is his glory in the earth. When it comes, it comes in his glory. And we should live in such a way where we actually reveal his glory and yield to his ways so that he's glorified through our lives. So I want you to think about this in closing. Jesus as king is prophesied in the Old Testament, isn't he? Over and over. Jesus is king very clearly in the New Testament. God's kingdom and the authority of his son can't be disconnected. You have no kingdom, you have no preaching of the kingdom without proclaiming Jesus as king. Jesus receives the kingdom, ascends the throne through self-sacrifice and obedience. He rules with justice and uprightness. He will trample his enemies in ultimate judgment and with perfect justice. And he has ultimate authority over everything that exists in any realm you can conceive of. He's over it all. He's sovereign. And when God's kingdom comes in glory and Jesus returns to establish his kingdom in new creation permanently, which you might refer to as the heavenly city of Jerusalem, whatever it is, the people of God and the citizens of that kingdom end up being the glory of God in new creation as we just enjoy the presence of God and rule alongside Jesus with whatever degree of authority and responsibility he's entrusted to us. Isn't that crazy? This is this might seem like it's completely disconnected from your life and does nothing for you. Quite the contrary. This is the truth that gets us through the difficulties of life. It's hanging on to all these beautiful truths and these promises of God and what's coming and what's absolutely true about Jesus and his way of ruling and his character. And he's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. These truths, the, the, the more grounded you are in them, the more strength you have to face whatever crap the enemy in the world throws at you. You have strength to face temptation. You have strength to endure suffering. You have strength to endure hardship. You have comfort and encouragement to walk through heartache. You have everything God provides and makes available to you through what we call the truth of God's word and his promises and knowing God. Knowing God. That's the heart of this thing is that we get to know 
God. Hey, thanks for listening to today's message. I need your help. Would you rate this podcast and give it an honest review to let others know what they can expect from this podcast? It would really help us in reaching more people with the truth of God's word. And be sure to check out AboveReproachMinistry.com for all of our free resources like trainings, Bible courses, worksheets, our online church, and much more. Thanks again for listening to this podcast and leaving a good review for others.